Well, good morning once again, and welcome to Redeeming Grace. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here. It is good, as always, to gather with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, Before we dive into the sermon, just wanted to uh, make note of, we've got these um, invite cards on the tables where communion elements are uh, and out in the lobby, and just encourage you to pick up a couple of these as you think about who you could invite to come gather with us on Easter, which is in two weeks. Uh, on the front of the card, it says, Jesus is risen, and asks a question. Why does that matter? And I think a lot of people maybe know Easter is about the resurrection, but really to stop and think about why it matters may be another thing they haven't done yet. And so just for you to invite them to come and learn and listen uh, about what, uh, why the resurrection matters. So grab a few of these and think and pray about who you could invite to come with us and worship with us on Easter. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. And Doreen's going to read our scripture for us. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, holy God, we are grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for your grace. God, in your providence, you've gathered us here today. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, by your spirit, to be attentive to your word and what you're saying to us as a church collectively and what you're saying to us as individuals. Help us, by your spirit, to submit our whole life and all of our living to you for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, throughout history, there have been multiple things that have come on the scene that have significantly altered the way that we live life. Some are inventions and some are discoveries. Think of things like electricity or penicillin, the combustible engine, airplanes, the internet, mapping the human genome, smartphones. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All of these things have changed life in such a significant way that to go back living like we did before they came along would be near impossible to do. But nothing, nothing has more significantly changed life than the gospel. The good news that Jesus, the eternal son of God, was born into this world to rescue and redeem us from it. See, all of us are born into this world, not independent, not free, but enslaved to our sin. We are rebels against God and his good ways. Our minds and our hearts are darkened, and the path that we're on, where self is at the center of it all, only leads to death. Because that's not how God created us to live. It's not how God created us to be. But God made a way of rescue In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins his introduction and says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to do what? To deliver us from the present evil age. 
Jesus came into this world living a perfect life of obedience before God, and he willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. He became a substitute for you and for me. And he did that to set us free from this present evil age. He did that to set us free from our sin and rebellion, and he rose again from the grave as a definitive declaration that sin and its consequences are defeated in him and through him. So now, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, their trust in Jesus, who he is and what he's done, their lives are fundamentally changed. The Bible uses words like new life, new creation, new heart, new self. When you and I turn away from our sin, when we place our faith in Jesus, it changes everything for you, including how you live in this world. Now you're set free not to be self-sufficient and independent, not that you ever were, but to follow Jesus, to follow him as Lord, to follow him as king and walk in his good ways. Like those inventions, like those discoveries, you can never go back to living life the way that you did before. Now, why do I say all that this morning? Why, why start there with the gospel? Well, last week, we jumped back into our Life Along the Way sermon series, a series where we just take some time to open up God's word and address different aspects of life, of being a follower of Jesus, someone who is in this world, but is not to be of this world. But thinking about how can we live life along the way in the place that God has us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, the reality is it can be challenging for us to live for God, to follow him in this world, to live for his kingdom in a world that isn't following him. But God gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us this group of people, his people, to help us to live in such a way that's for his glory, for our good and the good of others. And right now, as the followers of Jesus in this local church, we want to take some time to see what God's word has to say about one of the most significant parts of our lives, our money, our possessions, and what we do with them. See, the world we live in, the culture we live in, has a whole lot to say about our money, a whole lot to say about our stuff. But now, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we don't follow what the world says about those things, but what our God says about those things, what our king says about those things. See, the reality is the grace of the gospel, the good news of the gospel isn't just for your salvation, isn't just about redeeming you and bringing you into right relationship with God. It impacts the entirety of your life. It transforms how you live. And in this case, how you view what's been given to you. So today, we're going to look at these three short verses in 1 Timothy 6. The book of 1 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor in a local church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a, an area, a town, a city that is rich, that is affluent, that has great material wealth. It's a place that's very similar to the place we find ourselves in. Fairfax County is one of the richest counties located in one of the richest countries in the world. And so whether you have a lot or a little, it's the place that all of us live and move and have our being. And so all of us have to be aware, as we learned last week from Luke 12, to be aware, to be on guard against the danger of materialism, the danger of greed that's all around us. 
But we also have to lean into and say, well, God, what do you want me to do with what you've given to me? How do I use what I have in light of the glorious good news of Jesus? Because everything has changed. And so my hope today is that by looking at this text, we'll see that the gospel sets us free. It sets us free to live generous lives in this present age. And by doing so, take hold of that which is truly life. So let's jump into 1 Timothy 6 and look at these three verses. And may God bless the preaching of his word. Paul's letter to Timothy is full of encouragement. It's full of exhortation that's theological, that's personal, that's practical when it comes to pastoring and leading a local church. And Paul covers a wide range of topics in this letter, including money and possessions. In fact, earlier in 1 Timothy 6, Paul addresses the temptation that all of us can have towards seeing wealth and the gaining of wealth is where we'll find contentment. He addresses this idea that maybe God's main goal isn't just to make you prosperous with the things of the world because some of the false teachers in that city were saying otherwise. Jesus taught something similar in the text we looked at last week in Luke 12. See, the reality is money and possessions, if we're honest, they can be distracting, even blinding to us, leading us to believe that we're okay or will be okay if our accounts are large, our houses are big, our closets are full. And we might completely, completely miss the God who is all and who is over all. But money is also a God-ordained tool. God has ordained in his providence, in his sovereignty, that money and resources and things are necessary for our functioning and living. They're necessary for the doing of ministry, of being the church. And so they're not bad in of themselves. They're useful for living, advancing the gospel among our neighbors and the nations. And so in light of God, in light of the gospel, Paul wants us to see that there's a different way, a better way to live as we relate to the things that he's given to us. So we come to our text and we see that in light of the gospel, we are first called to a countercultural hope. Look at verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, before we get into this charge, before we really understand what Paul's saying here and telling Timothy to talk to his local church about, we have to ask, who is Paul talking about? He says, as for the rich in this present age, who is that? Or in other words, does that apply to me and to you? Or can we opt ourselves out of this? You know, when it comes to assessing if we are rich, there's always someone you can look to who has more than you. You could think, well, I don't have as much as that person or as much as my neighbor or as much as my family member, so that must not be me. Clearly, he's talking to them. Is that the case, though? Does, does Paul give us an opt-out here from this exhortation? Well, let's think about that for a minute. By the standards of the world, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are material, materially rich, some more than others. But pretty much everyone here has much more than most of the 8 billion people in our world. And one way I think we can assess that is if we have a disposable income. In other words, if you can go to a coffee shop and buy a cup of coffee for three or four or seven dollars, if you can go out to eat, if you can go to see a movie, if you have a Spotify subscription, if you buy new shoes on some kind of regularity or even own more than one pair of shoes, 
if you own a car, if you have a computer, all of those things can help us see that we are, most of us, rich in this present age. And so what that means is that what Paul's telling Timothy to communicate to his local church is relevant and applicable for the vast majority of us in this room in this local church. So in light of knowing that he's talking to us, what is it that he's calling us to? Well, Paul's telling a young pastor of a local church in a wealthy area to charge them, in this case, to, do two, to not do two things. He's instructing them, directing them, commanding them not to be haughty and not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. It can be a temptation to think that because I have more or I have a lot or I have more than someone else, then I must be more important than someone else, more special than someone else who has less than I do. We see this in our society all the time. The rich are often the famous. With wealth comes privilege. And so Paul's charge is not to be prideful. That's what haughty means, not to be arrogant, not to be self-important because of what you have. Because what you have, all of it, isn't from you. It's from God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What that means is your ability to work, to produce income, to get the wealth that you have, to earn money, that's not just because you figured things out. That's a gift from God, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Your circumstances that allow you to live where you live and have what you have is a gift of grace from God, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. That means that you and I aren't owners of the things we have. As we talked about last week, we're stewards, we're managers of these resources. See, that was the problem with the man in the parable from Luke 12. He, he had wealth, but his assessment of what, of what he had was so focused on himself that he was pretentious, he was prideful, he was self-important, and God was completely absent from his thinking. So Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant when it comes to thinking about what you have. And second, he says to live with a countercultural hope. The rich of this present age should not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why is that? I mean, if we're honest, we could say at some level, having money can give us some security in life, right? Having resources can bring some level of happiness as we're able to enjoy certain things and do certain things. But at the end of the day, money and stuff are shaky things to build your life on. Shaky things to put your hope on because it doesn't last and it ultimately won't satisfy. Earlier in 1 Timothy 6 verse 7, Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or as one pastor put some imagery to it, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? We can't take anything with us when we pass from this life to the next. If that's all we're putting our hope in, then there's really no hope at all. See, riches and things are fleeting. They don't make good masters. They don't make good objects of our hope or our worship. But man, we can be so easily enamored with shiny things, can't we? As another pastor said, we can be so enamored with the stuff of future garage sales. Put all of our time, all of our energy in acquiring more and more. Man, I know I can. 
I can look around at people that I interact with in my neighborhood and my community and just looking at the world in this area and think, man, it'd be really nice to have that Toyota Supra. Yes. <laughs> That'd make me happy. It'd be really nice to have a little bit more. It'd be really nice to be able to go on that kind of vacation. If I just had a little bit more, then I think, I think I'd be happier than I am now I can be caught up in all of that as well. I can find myself and my mood rising or falling depending on how much I have in my account and in trying to provide for a family of six in this area thinking, oh, if I just had that, then everything would be okay. It's something we all have to be aware of. Jesus tells us it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's an easy, easy thing to put our hope in. It's an easy thing to be a substitute God. And the reality is it's often subtle that we might be doing that. But it's not the creation. It's the creator who calls us to worship him. It's the creator, our God, who, who calls us to put our hope in him alone, which is what Paul says to do. Don't do these things. Don't be haughty. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but hope in God. Now, before we get to that and really try to understand what that means, notice what Paul doesn't say. I don't want us to miss this. He doesn't say that being wealthy in and of itself is wrong. I think it's important for us to understand that. I think sometimes when we think about one, not, not wanting to be greedy, not wanting to be materialistic, we can overcorrect to, to what I call as a poverty theology that says if in order for me to be godly, I must have nothing. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He, he doesn't rebuke anyone for having this stuff. He just says, if you have this, this is what our heart and our posture towards life should be. Maybe you've even heard before, money is the root of all evil or all kinds of evil, but that's not exactly what God's word says. First Timothy six, verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money, money in and of itself, wealth in and of itself is not inherently wrong. It's amoral as it stands alone, but how you get it and what you do with it becomes the issue because how you get it and what you do with it is a matter of your heart. Your heart is where the motivational structure of your life resides. Everything flows out of your heart, your identity, your love, your worship, your hope. All of it flows out of your heart. And so it's reflecting where your heart is. Jesus tells us you can't serve both God and money. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So then, instead of putting your hope in the uncertainty of riches, Paul says, don't do that. It's fleeting. It'll be here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, put your hope in God. Why? Because there's no uncertainty in him. He is sure. He is steady. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Brothers and sisters, our good God richly provides us with everything we need. Not want, but with everything we need. And we know this because he's met our greatest need already. Our greatest need in life is grace. Our greatest need in life is redemption. We talked about that at the beginning, that we are enslaved to our sin, but he sent Christ to die in our place on the cross to redeem us out of our sin and the wrath that we deserve because of our rebellion. He sets us free from that. He sets us free from our selfishness and greed. He sets us free from our false worship and our misplaced hope. As we saw in Galatians 1.4, he delivers us from this present evil age. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Now, that doesn't mean that God's just going to hook you up with whatever you want. He's going to make you rich and happy and healthy through material means. It means he's giving, given you everything you need in Christ. If you want to be made whole, it's in Jesus. If you want to be made new, it's in Jesus. If you want to be reconciled to God, it's in Jesus. He's lavished his grace on you. He's given you that. So now, in light of that, you can trust him to take care of you in the present moment, according to his purposes and according to his plans for your good and for his glory, because he is a good father who loves you and cares for you. See, our hope then in this present age is not based on what we have, but who we have, or better yet, who has us. The God who richly provides us with everything, Paul says, with everything to enjoy. I love that Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts that last phrase in there, everything to enjoy. I think it helps us as followers of Jesus to have a healthier, holistic view of money and things. See, enjoying the things of God, the things that God gives is not about living a life of luxury or pursuing pleasure or being hedonistic. It's understanding that everything is a gift from him, the one who called everything into existence out of nothing and called it all good. His good creation is meant to be ruled and enjoyed for his glory. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do then, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything we have, we can use to glorify him. This is a countercultural charge to have a countercultural hope. To say we can enjoy the good things of God, we can enjoy the things He's given to us, but that's not where our hope is. Our hope is the one who gives. It's so often the opposite of what the world would say. See, the siren call of the world encourages us to get more and keep more. Because in doing so, the promise to you is that you'll be happy and satisfied and secure in life. The next, the new, the nicest, the biggest, the best is always something worthy of your pursuit, always something worthy of spending your time and your energy and your resources and your strength to acquire no matter the cost. So we need to be aware, even as followers of Jesus, as we find ourselves being in the world but not of the world, we have to be aware that the shadows of our culture's view of wealth and money and possessions can creep into our thinking, can creep into our living, can creep into our church. But when you and I root ourselves in the gospel, when we understand who God is and what we have in him, we are set free, set free to live with a countercultural hope, regardless of how much or how little we have, regardless of how well the economy is going or not, regardless if we get that raise or bonus, because we know we have him and he has us. Again, it comes back to our heart. So let me ask, where is your heart this morning? Where is your hope this morning? Where are you looking for security and peace? Is it in God or the things that God gives? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're recognizing that you've been placing your hope in those things, I just want to encourage you to repent and turn away from that and place your hope once again in God. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ and you recognize, man, that is where my whole life is built around what I have, not God. I want to encourage you, implore you, turn away from that and place your hope in Jesus. Place your hope in the God who saves. In light of the gospel, we're called to a countercultural hope. And when we have that, it leads to living a generous life. Look at verse 18. 
They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's when you and I set our hope on God on who he is and what he's done that we can do what Paul calls us to in these verses. Do good is kind of the header for the things that follow. What does it mean to do good? It means to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So what do those things mean? Well, first, we have to understand that to be generous is to be liberal and open-handed with our resources. This certainly includes your money, but also your possessions and your time and your talents. And so Paul says, be rich in good works. All of us have time. All of us have talents and abilities and giftedness. And all of those things have been given to us by God. There's common grace in that. Before we place our faith in Jesus, though, we often use those things with self at the center. But when Jesus invades our life, we no longer live for self, but for him, for, for our sake, who died and was raised. So being good, rich in good works, then, is an aspect of being generous, looking for ways to use our time, looking for ways to use our talents and our gifts, not for self, but to give away in order to love and serve others. This can be done both formally and informally. It could be signing up and serving in Grace Kids on a Sunday morning or serving on the worship team or participating in hypothermia prevention week like so many of you did just this last week. Thank you again for doing that. Thank you, Sarah and Kevin Cooner, for leading that. Those are ways that we can formally seek to be generous and rich in good works. But it can also be informal, like bringing a meal to someone who's in need or helping a friend from community group move or helping someone with a repair at home or, or helping someone make a budget for the first time or babysitting for free. There are so many ways to be rich in good works that are rooted in the grace you've been given. And I love that so many of you are already doing that. I see you serving. I see you loving. I see you caring for people within our community and outside of our community. I've been a direct recipient of that myself. We had a leak in our house, uh, uh, I guess a few months ago now, and I was like, man, if I call a plumber, that's going to be so much money. And so I just, oh, well, let me ask my church family about that. And long story short, a guy came over to our house and fixed the leak in my house, and I said, can we pay for the parts at least? And he said, no, this is just to bless you. Man, that's being rich in good works. Coming alongside one another, serving one another. It's encouraging, it's contagious. And you know what? It's attractive to the world around us. Because so many people in the world around us don't live with others in mind. They don't seek to be rich in good works if self isn't at the center of it. Paul also says to be generous and ready to share. Here, he zeroes in on our money and things. Again, to be generous is to be liberal and open-handed with what we have. And we can do this when we remember that all we have isn't ours, but God's. We are managers. We're stewards of these things. And so we can ask him for the help of the Holy Spirit to know what he wants us to do with what we've been given. And I wonder, I wonder if that's where we sometimes get off track in all of this. That we just don't take a few moments just to say, God, what, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? with my salary, with my bonus, with my car, with my house, with my stuff? What do you want me to do with it? Being generous and ready to share can also be formal and informal. It certainly includes giving regularly and sacrificially to your local church. 
as, as members of one body in this local church, we commit to one another to say, we're all in together in this. So how can we take our resources together to make much of Christ? How can we take our resources together to make and equip growing disciples of Jesus? Apart from your financial generosity, we wouldn't be here as a church. Apart from your financial generosity, I wouldn't be standing here as one of your pastors. But it can also be paying someone else's electric bill or helping cover someone's rent. It could be loaning your car to a friend who has their car in the shop. It could be letting someone live with you, maybe for a very reduced rent or, or no rent at all. And again, I'm encouraged. I see so many of you doing this already, both formally and informally. And again, I've been the direct recipient of your generosity, both as a paid pastor at this church, but also just as a member and a friend. And I'm grateful that we as a church are seeking to use what's been given to us. And as we take that collectively to send and support missionaries and church planters, we had three of them here recently giving God's word to us. Your generosity helps us to be able to come alongside of them so that our neighbors and the nations might also hear the good news of Jesus. Church, our generosity is always motivated by our hope in God. Our generosity in good, being rich in good works is always motivated by the grace of the gospel. And so I want us to keep growing in this, both as individuals and as a church, as we continue to grow in the gospel. I love this quote from one pastor scholar. He said, we scarcely realize what the church could accomplish in the world if we gave our money away for Jesus with the same liberality that Jesus gave his life for us. God's modeled generosity to us already. And so we aren't called to create a generosity law or check a generosity box. Generosity of this kind starts with a changed heart that comes through the grace of the gospel. So God doesn't force you to give away your resources. He frees you to give away your resources. And it'll always be for your joy. It's because of our hope in God and the gospel that we're set free to live faithfully generous lives, to live joyfully generous lives, to be so generous that the world around us might even call it radical generosity because it's so perplexing to them that we would use what we have for these purposes. Brothers and sisters, because of the lavish grace of God towards us in Christ, you and I should be the most generous people on this planet because we've received such grace and mercy from God, seeking to use what we have now to show that same mercy and share that same grace. So here's what I want us to do in light of all that. Together, let's scheme for the kingdom of God. Let's scheme for the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is let's be creative. Let's be intentional. Let's talk with one another about what we've been given and how we can use that to exalt Christ and to worship God. Let's, let's open up our lives to one another and ask ourselves and ask one another, what does generosity look like for me? What does generosity look like for us? How can we do this? How can we be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. Let's seek to be a faithfully and radically generous church made up of faithfully and radically generous people. As Mark quoted another pastor in his sermon last week, generosity is an act of resistance. It's rebellion against the ways of the world. Our culture and the world we live in encourages us to build bigger barns to get as much as we can and use it to enjoy for ourselves. 
And it can be tempting to listen to the world and not to the God who owns it all. It can be tempting to hold on to more and more just in case. It can be tempting not to be generous when our resources are tight. I know that's the case for me. If I think, especially in this last year, as resources are tight and things cost more money, what is my first thing? Should we, should we give less? Should we be less generous right now? When we come back to the gospel and place our hope in God and not the uncertainty of riches, I believe, and I've seen this in my own life, we can experience freedom just to say, God, I want to trust you in this. I want to be wise, but I want to trust you in this. Help me to open up my hands. Help me to open up my life to give and share with others, knowing it'll bring glory to you. In light of the gospel, when it comes to our money and things, we're called to a countercultural hope, which leads to living a generous life, and it results in taking hold of that which is truly life. Verse 19, Paul concludes by saying, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they, those that have done all these other things, may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm grateful that Paul closes this exhortation with this verse. He shows that the outworking of faithful generosity that's rooted in our hope in God will result in a good foundation for the future. He's talking about eternity But he isn't saying by being generous, you're going to buy your way into eternity with God or you're going to earn your way into heaven. This is a call to live out the reality of your heavenly citizenship, of your new identity in Christ, which has been made secure in and through Christ here and now. This is a call to live in this present age with your eternal life, an eternal future in view. See, that which is truly life is not a life built on the temporal stuff of today the firm foundation of Jesus and his kingdom. And it's our giving, our generosity, our richness in good works that enables us to realize more and more that this world is passing away, that this place is not our home. But one day you and I will stand face to face with our savior in the fullness of his kingdom. So on that day, what will you say? What will I say on that last day when it comes to what we've done with all that we've been given? Brothers and sisters, the gospel changes everything. It changes everything for you. It sets you free and it makes you new. So in light of the gospel, in light of God's grace, may we, may, may we be willing to examine our own hearts, to examine our own lives and ask God to help us to open up our hands as we set our hope on him so that we might live generous lives in this present age and take hold of that which is truly life in the age to come. Amen.